Section 25 of A Short History of France by Mary Duclos. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Part 3. Chapter 6. The Fall of the Monarchy. Part 1. We now begin ten years which loom so large in history, we scarcely can believe they merely were ten years. The revolution, like a fiery plough, cut through France a fertilizing furrow, deep and unspeakably cruel, yet on the whole salutary. It buried out of sight all that hitherto had caught the eye and glittered, while it lifted out of the depths, in a supreme upheaval, fresh beds of virgin soil full of growth and unsuspected vigor of production. In those ten years, what an edifying dance of the whirligig of time! The revolution did not at once define its aim, which was the combination of liberty and unity. When a new idea comes into being, it seldom springs full-fledged from the nest. The first conception of the men of 89 was a federation of provinces, each retaining its own essential life and character. They saw the state as a community of communities. It was the medieval pre-Renaissance view. But all the modern democracies still were federal. Switzerland, with her concert of cantons, the United Provinces of the Netherlands, and those United States of America which France had helped to liberate, and which, naturally enough, appeared especially a model to copy. And there were others in the state who admired the supple strength of the British Constitution and recommended it for imitation. The French Republic was to be like none of these, but forged in tyranny and terror to such a degree of unity and patriotic energy as the world had not yet witnessed. Those men of 89 will for the most part die on the scaffold, accused of federalism as though it were a crime, the blackest form of treason, as perhaps indeed it was at that moment. The history of France is full of coup d'etat, brusque transformations of the government by means of an extraordinary stroke of policy. But the great revolution did not spring like a bolt from the blue. The cloud had hung on the horizon, threatening, for more than fifty years. When it broke at last, it was with no sudden thunderclap, but in heavy spots, falling one by one, and in approaching rumblings, leading up to the unimaginable and shattering crash of the tempest unchained. And threat followed threat, with intervals so promising that even now we wonder whether a firmer conduct on the part of the crown might not have averted, or at least diminished, the full catastrophe. On the 5th of October, 1789, some 8,000 women of Paris marched on Versailles. They were angry at the continued shortage of bread, half-starved, and persuaded that the king meant to starve Paris into submission, convinced, too, that the queen meditated some traitorous coup d'etat. Louis had unwisely summoned the regiment of Royal Flanders to Versailles, like so many of his actions. It was at once too much and not enough. A whole army might have inspired terror and respect for the crown. One foreign regiment was a senseless provocation. 
and the court had played the fool and made matters worse the king's bodyguard had given a banquet to royal flanders while paris was without bread the royal family had attended the band had played o richard o mon roi l'univers t'abandonne and the well-known air had excited a paroxysm of royalist sentiment five or six soldiers of royal flanders had torn from their caps the tricolour cockade and had stuck a white ribbon in its place all this was known in paris on the morrow commented on and magnified so the women of paris set out for versailles at the head of a mob of insurgents the garde nationale that volunteer non-uniformed militia which had come into being on the thirteenth of july by a process of spontaneous generation in order to save the capital from some mysterious wholly imaginary saint bartholomew which the queen was supposed to meditate the garde nationale then forced its general lafayette to lead these valiant hungry shrews on their wild mission and this at last he did in the hope of protecting the royal family from their rough caresses but who has not read in the romantic pages of carlyle or michelet the wonderful tale of the women's raid on versailles no page in the history of france is better known than the story of their mad endeavour and its success the king left versailles at their bidding stipulating only that he should take with him his wife his sister and his children whom in truth he dared not leave behind knowing himself to be in spite of all so much the most popular personage of them all it was a wrench at his very heartstrings a plunge in the abyss louis knew that henceforth he would be at least for a time the prisoner of paris would he win the hearts of his unruly subjects like henri iv and find his true glory in his arrogant capital for the last hundred years no king had dared to dwell in paris was this step a leap backwards to the popular rule of the little bearnais versailles was the very symbol of absolute monarchy the visible emanation of louis the fourteenth for the king who quitted it sadly it was more than this it was the scene of all his life hunting was his one passion and here were his woods metalwork his one pleasure and here was his forge here were all his friends his habits so dear to an indolent and lymphatic nature in these high galleries he had first neglected and then adored his spirited undisciplined queen for one long moment louis hesitated if he must quit versailles it was still possible to escape through trianon to rouen or to make a dash for Metz, as the queen advised and urged but flight would mean civil war who knows perhaps a crown for his constitutional cousin the duke of orleans so louis went to paris let the shrieking dishevelled minads carry him off through his carriage window he saw the dancing mad women brandishing yellow poplar boughs snatched from the autumnal trees a wild cohort they looked escorting the coach of the king and through this moving wood a gleam of metal showed where the soldiers pikes lifted in the air the loaves of bread conquered from some sacked bakery but two of their pikes supported the murdered heads still dripping 
of the royal guards who had died to save their king. He saw that. He must have heard the ghastly threats howled at the queen sitting by his side. Give me her entrails to make a fine cockade. No, I'll take her legs, and so on, in obscene jest and threat. Yet when after nine hours of that terrible journey they arrived in Paris, Louis exhibited that automatic and uncanny cheerfulness which he showed in all the tragic moments of his life, disconcerting our sympathy by its inappropriate good humour. They reached the Tuileries by torchlight. Supper was served at ten. Louis astonished all beholders by his prodigious appetite. The king looked radiant, writes a witness. The queen had on a little black cloak, a hood, no rouge. She has lost her fixed eagle gaze and the proud carriage of her head. The assembly lost no time in following the king to Paris. The great affair of both was the new constitution. Louis was as well persuaded as any revolutionary of the need for reform. Had he not tried in vain for fifteen years to govern his kingdom? He had begun with a liberal minister, Turgot, and Turgot had found the task too much for him, giving as his excuse, la France n'a pas de constitution. And then Louis had tried a conservative premier, but Monsieur de Calonne had made a far worse mess of it, and had finally declared the kingdom impossible to govern. We have seen in a preceding chapter what Voltaire thought of the French constitution, its tissue of contradictions, its incoherent jumble of laws. France was an agglomeration of duchies and provinces acquired in differing conditions at differing times. Some were pays d'état, represented by their own provincial states or chambers, Others were pays d'administration, governed directly by the crown. North of the Loire there were pays de droit coutumier, whose legal system was based on feudal law and barbarian tradition. Each town, each province had its own variety, while south of the great dividing river the country was pays de droit écrit, and its jurisdiction a modified survival of Roman law. Some of these provinces succumbed beneath the load of their taxation, while a few miles off, a neighboring district would be almost enfranchised from the general expenses of the state. The first task of the constituent deputies was to break up all this muddle, and to reduce to some sort of rule and order and unity the incoherence and the inconsistency of France. Their work was far from perfect, and yet they did wonders, they sketched the first rough draft of the France we know today. The revolution was to draw up six constitutions in the space of eleven years. They all followed in essentials the plan of the constituent. It began with a clean slate. The provinces, with all their discrepancies, were abolished. France was divided into eighty-three departments, each with its subsidiary districts and cantons in every canton a justice of the peace, in every district a county court, in every department a court of assize, and in Paris a court of appeal. The same law was administered from Flanders to Provence and from Lorraine to Brittany. A magistrate was no longer an official who purchased his place and bequeathed it with his other property to his son. The law was henceforth above all privilege. 
the king might no longer by virtue of his sealed orders lettre de cachet send a man to prison at his own sweet will the nobles had no longer their private courts and their rights even in some cases of life and death over their subjects the clergy were forbidden to incarcerate the erring nun and the disobedient priest according to a system of their own the law was universal and equal france was not yet free but a great blow had been struck for equality it would have been well perhaps if the revolution could have stopped here and have henceforth developed by a process of evolution the king was generous humane and much less of a fool than is generally supposed but too many passions and interests were engaged the financial question was too involved the army too disorganized and deliquescent owing to the long abuse of privilege and louis himself it must be owned though a good creature had neither the genius the constancy nor the intellect which alone could ride the storm his position in the new constitution was ambiguous and ill-defined he might propose no law the laws were voted by the chamber but he had a right of veto that is to say he might delay suspend retard the execution of any law voted by the chamber for a term of five or six years the assembly was to be renewed by election every two years the king might suspend the law till the next legislation but one if after that time the deputies stuck to their text he must needs recall the veto but as a matter of fact the rebellious resentful nation contested every application of this right of veto which was to prove as we shall see the undoing of the king he had in addition the right to declare war and to choose his ministers that is to say the nominal right but woe betide him if he called to office an unpopular premier and the first war he declares it will be with tears in his eyes for the people's enemy is the king's ally austria the unfortunate louis seems to us a king log if he had been more of a king log it might have been well for him but he took the constitution seriously learned it by heart attempted not to overpass the limits of his restricted sovereignty which must have seemed so humble to the grandson of louis quinze and used in all good faith the kingly rights which were set down in the charter as his due appurtenances the king and his family passed a melancholy year in paris prisoners or almost in their half dismantled chambers of the tuileries if any ray of hope as summer came again shot across the gloom of their long confinement it was not the result of the plots and plans of the venturesome royalists who when so many emigrated followed their sovereign to paris and set up house so to speak in the very jaws of the lion the bright eyes of the royalist ladies who covered with white favours and bourbon lilies came and went temerariously and promised help from coblenz conde cobourg brunswick pitt all quarters of the compass these were not the dispensers of comfort but for one summer's day the king believed that he and his people had sworn a covenant that peace reigned between them and that the days of henri iv had dawned again it was on the fourteenth of july the anniversary of the fall of the bastille 
a great public festival was to commemorate the event and to celebrate the still unterminated task of the constituent assembly every little town in france was to send its delegates chosen from the volunteer militia of the provincial municipalities while paris was to assemble all the bodies of the state to witness the solemn conjunction of monarch and nation a year later in a mood of bitter resentment when louis drew up the manifesto which explained the reasons of his flight to varennes he reverted with a sudden tenderness to the memory of that one halcyon day les moments les plus doux de mon séjour à paris and to the attachment and devotion which the citizen militia of france had then shown to his person they had come in their cohorts these bourgeois volunteers from all the towns and villages of the kingdom by their spontaneous adhesion they reconstituted france and in the midst of sceptical dissatisfied paris they represented the mass of the nation enthusiastic for freedom and the king and seeing between their two idols no incompatibility for their congregation the great bare field of the champ de mars had been surrounded by tiers of grassy steps or benches arising in an amphitheatre occupied by two thousand parisians in the middle of the plain rose the altar of peace l'hôtel de la patrie foursquare with at each corner a group of a hundred priests their white surplices barred by a tricoloured sash at the altar itself talleyrand bishop of autun said mass while twelve hundred musicians played military music and all round in the free space between the altar and the amphitheatre moved the fourteen thousand volunteers beneath their innumerable banners in front of the altar for the king was placed a solitary throne the queen the royal family the national assembly were seated on a grandstand the mass over forty cannon voiced their hoarse reverberation the king rose he and the nation swore their solemn covenant all day it had rained but at that solemn moment the sun came out in a sudden ray countless voices in a paroxysm of hope and enthusiasm sent up the cry long live the citizen king the delegates of touraine presented louis with a ring that had belonged to henri iv in that moment the vision of a monarchy renewed a popular and prosperous reign dazzled the eyes of the prisoner of the people the queen herself forgot her cold and arrogant hostility she sprang forward lifting her little boy in her arms here is my son he and i share all the feelings of the king tous généralement sont ivres d'amour pour le roi et la famille royale wrote a spectator two days later but alas even in that hour of enthusiasm a rift in the ground which was soon to become a yawning chasm divided the king and the country End of section twenty five